Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Visit RCAT.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Welcome to Detailed. My guest today is Alan Scales, principal at KTGY Group, Inc., Alan is a licensed architect in the state of California and principal in charge of KTGY's Irvine-based studio. The Irvine studio focuses on low-density housing design and documentation in both the for-sale and for-rent spaces. They are always up for a good challenge, be it a tough infill site, difficult zoning application, or a unique innovative design solution. Alan has a passion for design, from early conception of program and site planning to home design and aesthetics, a balancing act for sure. The project we are going to chat about today is the June Street Collection in Hollywood, California. I want to go to Hollywood, California. The June Street Collection is the epitome of Hollywood luxury living. Each of the 10 single-family homes are steps away from fine dining, shopping, and entertainment. And gorgeous, I might add, because I totally went and trolled this project online. The project is located in a city of Los Angeles, small lot subdivision consisting of an assemblage of three small parcels, 10 total building lots, and a combination of two and three-story structures with roof decks. The client aspired to keep the neighborhood happy through a series of meetings. The first meetings ended in tears and curse words towards the team which I can't wait to hear about that. The meetings terminated with neighborhood approval and support for the project. Now that is accomplishing something. Okay, so I went and looked at this project and looked at pictures of it online, and it is gorgeous. And I know that projects in California, especially with the market the way that it is, and it seems like because we have the same issue in Portland, we, there's just not enough housing. 
for all the people that need it, which is just creating all kinds of issues. Tell me more about about this project, kind of the story behind it and the goals and aspirations you were going for when you started this project and how it came to be. Yeah, you know, this was a, a new opportunity for us to work with Canfield Development. They're the developer, builder. We had been doing that work for four or five years at the time. So we were building reputation. They got wind of it. And we had this great opportunity to to start a new relationship. And it was pretty clear from the beginning, from the onset, that Canfield's ambitions were to build a quality for sale market rate housing community. And it really aligned with our goals. We didn't want to just be there to stamp out houses. We wanted to create spaces that are livable and and so forth. A long-term commitment to not just the design and the business side of things, but being a part of a, a solution that was the right solution for the context in the market, et cetera. So that said, the initial ambitions outside of sort of the economic side of things, which are always challenging, um, was to find a solution that fits within the zoning. And to step back a little bit, the small lot subdivision ordinance is in place to provide what is intended to be attainable housing. Of course, we'll get there a little bit later, but city of LA is known for having been built out, at least from a housing standpoint, you're not getting a lot of larger opportunities, larger land assemblages for a for sale community. For rent, you might see some of those opportunities, but the idea with the small lot ordinance was to create opportunities to take underutilized properties that were zoned for multifamily that may have been an old single family house uh, that otherwise would allow you to create more density. So zoning has to be in place for this type of development to happen. And in our case, of course, from a builder standpoint, you want to maximize those opportunities. So while you're allowed to build to a specific set zoning density, there comes challenges with that. And so part of the process was educating the client as to how we can solve the site and still make it livable and economically viable. But as you can imagine, every, not every, but many good developers out there will look for maximization on the density. So we were allowed to build 12 homes on the site. And so that's where we started with the solution. And when we start these types of design problems, we like to give several big ideas. And of course, of the four or five different concepts, 12 homes was the preferred solution, obviously, because we're maximizing density and that means maximizing economic returns and so forth. So we pursued that 12 home subdivision and moved that into the first step. And City of LA at the time, and even now, they have neighborhood councils that are a part of the process. So subdivision is a discretionary process to get to building these homes. Um, of course, we presented 12 homes to the local residents in this neighborhood council. And it really just threw them up in, in arms. And of course, change is a big component here, right? You're, you're looking at what used to be three homes. You know, I think there was an old dilapidated single family home and a couple of duplexes. And now we're changing that into 12 homes. And so 
at the time, small lot was a four-letter word in the city of L.A. There's a certain amount of fear of the unknown and a fear of change. And so we started these initial public meetings in the neighborhood. It was literally just down the street at the library at the end of the block, uh, meeting with residents and neighborhood council members to show them how a 12-unit small lot subdivision would be great. And you know what? It was tight. We used every last inch of the property to make it fit and make it work. And, you know, in hindsight, that wasn't a very good strategy. It looked too tight. Well, it was too tight. It wasn't a very uh, friendly or neighborly solution. So fortunately, Canfield was on board with the idea of listening. That's not true of every developer. Some will just push forward with, you know, what they're entitled to build based on zoning. So after, oh, geez, four different neighborhood council meetings, we eventually went back to the drawing board and we downsized to 10 homes instead of 12. And in that process, we started really thinking about how do we fit the context? And so instead of three stories that we're allowed to build everywhere with a five foot setback on the sides and the rears, we started looking at stepping the frontage down to two-story homes and fitting into the context of what was largely a two-story neighborhood. So even though you're allowed to build three-story, we were first on the block to start this trend of change. And so fitting in contextually with scale at the frontage made a whole bunch of sense. Pulling back the edges, so instead of being five feet from your neighbors, we're now looking at 10, 12, 15 feet, depending on what part of the building. So we've created a lot more dynamic setbacks and edges, places to landscape and soften and, you know, create the spaces between the homes for outdoor courtyards and so forth. And that process really won over the neighborhood. Okay, so let's talk about some of the challenges and how you tackled them. One of the ones that I have to ask if this was a typo or if I read it right When you sent me over some of the information on the project, it said the homes were at least in some spots six to eight inches apart. Is that, is that for real? Not six to eight feet. That is for real. Yeah. Uh, I just, I can only imagine the constructability review on that. So please (laughs) tell me a little bit about the design of this building. Sure. Yeah. And some of that's baked into the small lot ordinance, we have to be fee simple. What exactly is fee simple? Well, it's the most commonly understood form of home and property ownership. Basically, it means that ownership isn't limited and you can pretty much do whatever you like on your property as long as you're not breaking the law or otherwise infringing on public welfare. You're free to use the property, sell it, rent it out, paint it hot pink, or leave it to your heirs. So this is going to look like a townhome community that would be a condo or apartment, whatever it might be in terms of ownership, but they're technically not attached. So there's some intricacies with that, but that's by design. The small lot ordinance in its inception, the idea was to provide fee simple ownership to Angelinos, future Angelinos, instead of buying what was on the market at the time, 5,000 square foot was the smallest lot you could buy. You might be able to buy condos, but with condos come HOAs and lots of other costs that make the idea of smaller scale housing and attainability sort of, uh, they sort of fight with each other. So 
on the economical side, you really have to maximize these homes to a point where you're building them close together. So in the small lot ordinance, you're allowed to build the homes zero inches apart from each other. And so that's just on a planning level, but in reality, on a technical level, you have to provide airspace. You cannot connect them. That's again, a product of the ordinance. These homes have to be structurally independent. So you could choose to make them six feet apart or eight feet apart, but of course you don't have to. And part of the purpose of the small lot ordinance is to incentivize builders and developers to come in and build for sale housing. Some of that is allowing reduced setbacks. That gets the builder communities excited because there's a reason to do it. They can get more house on the lot, not more houses. It's not about density. It's about house. But the basic uh, concept is structurally independent fee simple homes and basically no setback between these homes. You are then left with trying to find a solution that's technically feasible. And that really is just an analysis with structure that space between those homes, we're going to call it, is really a seismic gap. That's the purpose of it. Scott Jones, Executive Vice President at Wright Engineers, gives us some insight into the unique conditions and structural design for small lot homes. Really what we're doing is we're making sure that in an earthquake, that the two houses can sway in an earthquake and they might sway at a little bit different period than each other because they're not exactly the same. There might be different models, might be a little bit different height. And so we have to make sure they're not going to bang into each other in an earthquake. If it's wind, then really the only house that receives the wind is the outer one. (laughs) The inner one doesn't receive any wind pressure, right? So, you know, your movement's going to be much less and and generally movement's less with wind than with uh, earthquake anyways, because the wind kind of comes and hits and has a more constant pressure, whereas the seismic loads gets kind of loosened things up and get it moving more. So, you know, if if you think about a regular single family home, more towards square, whereas these are going to be really deep and narrow. And by virtue of these things being very narrow, um, the architects usually want them to be very open, especially on the main floor, which is often the second floor above grade, above the above the garage. They want it to be, you know, pretty much 100% open. They want it to be all windows front and back so you can get as much light as you can. And so the rub for us is we're trying to create stiff structure through some shear walls and the demands on the structure are much higher when you get a product like that. So you're going to expect to, as the, as the builder, to pay a lot more in cost per square foot of structural items like beams. You know, so you got more beams, you got longer beams, um, less opportunities for posts because they want to keep them all open. So you're going to have, you know, bigger increases in cost there. Your shear walls are going to be um, smaller in size. But what that means is they're higher stress. So that means it's going to be thicker plywood, for instance, more heavily nailed. The posts on the end of them are going to be bigger to transfer the loads down to the foundation. The hold downs, you know, the devices that are steel that actually attach the posts and attach the foundation, those are going to be much larger um, and more expensive. Studs, you know, you're going to go three stories high. So you're going to expect to get tighter stud spacing. And then, you know, another big part is just on the soil side. In Southern California, in a lot of parts of the country, especially in the South, uh, where you have a lot of clay soils that are expansive or, you know, semi-collapsible, they'll contract. We take advantage of very strong post-tension steel cable foundations. And that's done on pretty much all single-family detached homes and a lot of townhomes and, you know, on-grade apartments and things like that in Southern California. 
to help mitigate the soils that, you know, will, will cause damage to the foundation if, in building if unchecked. And so in order for a post-tension foundation to work, we pour a foundation. There's these cables that are in plastic sleeves that go through it. After the foundation set there for a few days and the concrete started to cure, then they, they essentially jack these cables with tension to induce this compression force on the slab um, that becomes very strong and stiff. The problem is with the small lot ordinances is you've got five houses in a row. We can pull cables front to back, fine, but we can't pull cables side to side anymore because you've got eight inches and then you got another house. <laughs> and then since it's your own property, I mean, you can't share a foundation with your neighbor. So now we have to do usually a conventionally reinforced slab, which can't take the same type of uplifts that a clay might push up with it on. And so now you end up having to rework the soil in order to make the soil better so that you can use the less structural, if you will, solution for the foundation that doesn't have to be as strong. So, you know, soil rework can be something that, you know, in effect is being caused by structural, but adding cost to the, the product um, in another area. So a lot, a lot of reasons that cost goes up per square foot for structure on this type of a product. That's effectively what's happening here is you're building these homes real close together and you're treating those as exterior walls that are close together. So from a technical side of things, you've got some building code implications and you have a one hour wall, no windows, obviously. You can think of it as a party wall, like that's effectively the end result and what you see. And once you uh, put the drywall up, it's a little different in terms of how it's physically built. I, I have um, to ask, because I get the whole party wall, it's attached. But when you actually have a separation and it's only six to eight inches, I am trying, all the years I've been in this business, trying to picture in my head how the hell they built that thing in the, like, is there exterior finish on those walls? I mean, six to eight inches is tiny. Like, yeah. for instance, if you had, we have siding, lap siding on my community. And I'm like, I don't know how you do that in a six to eight inch I mean, I just, I have to know how, how did they, for those areas that are so close together, what did they do there or what did you design there so that they could build that? Yeah, there's obviously a methods of construction issue there. And then of course there's a code implication from a building code standpoint. You know, we've done this many, many times now in the city of LA um, that we know exactly how the building officials, plan checkers are going to treat this. And they're treating it like an exterior wall. And so in terms of how it's built, it's basically a dense glass type product on the outside wall. And so you're getting a one hour rating from having a rated jip board on the exterior. Oftentimes they're even requiring us to put building paper on the outside in what you'd call this airspace, the six to eight inches that you have. And then of course you'd have type X jip on the inside, but in terms of physically building these walls, they're really framed up and prelimbed on the ground and then tilted into place. And they're putting building paper on it and everything and having a the bottom course of the building paper sort of run long. So when you tip it up, it's sort of lapping itself over the course just below it. So it's not completely unusual in how you'd build a tilt up wall, but this is being done in a wood frame for all the small lot subdivisions that I'm aware of. So what about the finish? What's the finish on the outside of those walls? Do they do that on the ground too before they tilt it up? Or was there one? No. There 
there can be, you have the option. And so what we bang our heads against the wall daily uh, is in regards to plan check comments and the misunderstanding of what's happening in that space. And um, we've been able to get to a point where we're not putting any exterior finish. Oftentimes early on, we were getting plan check comments to put siding and stucco and these types of materials. And you're like, well, how the heck am I going to do that? It's an expansion joint cover detail that spans the gap between these homes. So what exactly is an expansion joint? An expansion joint is a mid-structure separation designed to relieve stress on building materials caused by building movement. That movement can be caused by wind, seismic events, live load deflection, and even simple thermal expansion. This is unique for lower density housing. Uh, it's very common in a high density building when you're doing 300 unit, five, six story apartment, or you're going to have you're going to have some structural challenges with these big buildings. You're going to create expansion joints. And, and so these, these systems have been out there used in parking garages. Everyone's seen them, whether they know it or not. It is a cost item that you can't overlook. When you're used to building a townhome in a condo typology, you're just running sheathing across the airspace and stucco exteriors, roof sheathing across no big deal. Now you've got a proprietary system and it's not just a piece of sheet metal. It's a product that allows the dynamic movement of these buildings. You know, if there's an earthquake, it's not going to just move laterally. It's going to move up and down and lateral and maybe all of that at the same time. So these systems are designed to absorb that movement without breaking. So you, last thing you want is these expansion joint covers to pop off. They are technically attached to both sides, but they kind of slip over each other, if you will. And it's a multiple layer system. So you're getting the exterior sheet metal. In some cases, it's a rubberized finish, depending on which surface. Typically, the horizontal surfaces are like you would think of any other flashing detail. And then the vertical surfaces tend to be either that or a rubberized product and there's backup systems and so that assembly starting from the top parapet walls if you have a, a flat roof all the way down the face underneath a cantilever following the entire length of the wall that is an expansion joint cover and that's effectively sealing that gap between the homes and creating an exterior assembly. So the building official and the plan checkers will treat that as your exterior finish and allow just the building paper to be in that space and avoid having to put an actual finished material on that wall on the inside. I'm sitting here trying to figure out in my head while you were talking before how, how the heck they built that. And, and then you said no finish. And I'm like, well, how do you cut? That's got to look horrible. And I didn't see that when I went and looked at the pictures. That's genius. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not, I'm not an architect, so I don't, I don't design things, but that's a great solution. Um, I know that housing projects like this are becoming more prominent all over the country. They're doing all kinds of weird new things in Portland to create more housing on less space. But I would not have figured that one out on my own. I would have went after this call and got, got back on your website and, you know, like zoomed into every photo, like how the, how the heck are they doing this? You can um, see it. You can see it. It's there. It doesn't go away entirely. 
Tell me a little bit about the homes. What what was your challenge in the individual homes? Of what were you were you trying to meet a certain square foot? Trying to have two bathrooms and everyone different. Tell me a little bit about the spaces. Yeah, I mean, some of that happens organically as you start to look at the constraints and listening to the neighbors, obviously the client and what they're trying to accomplish. And without a doubt, they had a square footage target uh, that made sense for them. Once you start looking at the density and creating 12 smaller homes, I forget exactly where we were, but let's say there were 12, 1,500 square foot homes. We end up solving 10 larger homes that equaled about the same total square footage. And we averaged, I'd say we were in 1,800, I think 2,200 square feet, somewhere in that neighborhood. The initial intent was to create 12 smaller homes and find an attainable price point. Relatively speaking, you can't look at these prices with the rest of the world in mind. You have to think city of LA and what a 5,000 square foot lot would have cost you. So with that in mind, the, the relative position of attainable, you know, that that started to change, right? So to get the square footage, and fortunately, they're in a market, Hollywood, great location, just north of Melrose, south of Sunset. So you're in a great spot to build larger homes. And that's effectively what they had to do is take the square footage they lost on the two homes they lost and spread it out to the other homes the neighbors ended up loving it, but what they actually did, unfortunately, is they pushed the pricing to a point where it's not attainable any longer. So the intent of the small lot ordinance to provide smaller attainable housing and a fee simple ownership, there's parts of it that are there, but the economics just don't work out to lose two homes on something as small as 10 or 12 homes to begin with. The homes ended up being three and four bedrooms Rooftop decks were absolutely a goal from day one. I think it's it sort of comes part and parcel with this type of housing. It's six to eight inches apart. These aren't big lots. These are small lots. It's in the name, right? So you don't have a lot of room to have rear yards and so forth. It's in a multifamily zoning district. So uh, where do you get privatized open space? It's on the rooftop deck. So it becomes your backyard. And so you're in the city, you've got views of the Hollywood sign. It, it makes a ton of sense for other reasons as well from a marketability standpoint. But that's that's really how you, you look at creating you know, privatized open spaces. And then from there, we had some, I'd say some unique solutions toward the rear of the site because we had power lines. The properties behind our property were more of a commercial, I think they're actually studios. So they're larger boxes not housing. So, you know, the view looking to the rear of our our property was power lines and parking lots and big box buildings, if you will, commercial buildings. So designing that last home to fit became very unique. And so what we had to do was step back the upper floors. We created a, a single or primary suite. It was more of an executive suite solution. So the third floor was a single bedroom with a small home office and then bathroom. So it was really intended to be for a smaller owner, you know, not with the family and not a family buyer. So, you know, young executive, whoever it might be. Since we lost the rooftop decks, as our footprint got smaller on that third floor, we had to find ways to create privatized open spaces and turn them, face them inward and create 
you know, views that were, you know, pleasing, not power lines and right. and so forth. Although some of that comes with the territory, people in an urban environment are more accustomed to that and acceptable of some of those views. But um, really turning the house in a different way than the rest of the homes at the back of, of this of this site created some really cool outdoor spaces that connected with the living. You know, most of the homes had rooftop decks, which were on the top. So they're, you know, as a critique, they're further away from the living on the second floor. You have to go up two flights of stairs to get to your roof deck. Once you're there, it's great. Um, but these homes at the rear, without those, uh, we ended up repositioning the decks onto the second floor over the garage and creating a really great, sizable outdoor room. So here we are creating, you know, spaces that are as big as the living room inside of the home. We're creating those same spaces outside. So some really interesting solutions came out of the challenges. You would look at power lines and some of the negative edges as uh, as a constraint. Well, we turned those into opportunities to create some really cool spaces to live in. Well, and those those views in that environment are... And again, I live in a townhome community. I have a three-story town townhome. Um, and the reason I bought the one I bought is because it's at the top of a little pull-out cul-de-sac. The rest of the community is in a long snake of a street. And my my backyard is a forest. And I'm at the top of the little cul-de-sac. So I, I go out. I have two decks. I go out on my deck. And to my left, I have the forest. And I can hear the stream. And there's walking paths. And to my right, I can see the sunset every night in all its blazing glory. And that was, even though it, it's a beautiful townhome, that was almost a bigger selling point for me because in a townhome community, you don't have a yard. And unfortunately, I'd love a roof. I'd love a rooftop deck. <laughs> it's like, can, can you come back in and add some of those? But I don't have a rooftop deck, but I do have two decks outside and I'm able to sit out there with nature and feel like. I didn't want a yard at this point in my life, but how you make those things work so that you have something pleasing, you know, in the middle of the city, you may not have a forest, but, you know, by moving those things around so they could see the Hollywood sign and, you know, and have a, a view, I'm, I imagine that helped up the price of those units. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. It's back to the idea of a balancing act and trying to find appropriate solutions. We're faced with this on infill sites all the time. And the responsible designer should be looking at all of those contextual cues and then responding to them with appropriate design ideas. And hey, it might be negative on one side, but you can really take those, it's the classic, you know, making lemonade out of lemons kind of a thing. And you can really find some interesting ideas, creative ideas, if you, you take the time to do it right. So tell me a little bit about the products you used in this building. Yeah, so visually speaking, a lot of this, and I, I keep going back to some of the early meetings with the neighborhood, it was important to be fitting. So a neighborhood that are classic Spanish, L.A. courtyard type housing, um, we looked at finding a solution that fit. Uh, it was actually kind of flying in the face of the trend at the time, which was glass, modern. We were coming in with a softer side of, hey, we want to be contextually compatible aesthetically. Right. Now, we didn't want to be tired and old with some of those ideas. And that doesn't mean that's not a good, a good solution. You could certainly have a traditional 
solution. But we created a, a slightly progressive Spanish style of architecture. We took some cues from other architecture, Irving Gill's an architect we refer to often for that typology. But we're talking about warm stucco exterior walls, accent tiles, so ceramic, uh, handmade ceramic tiles around entries, arched doors, uh, flat roofs, which actually you might think, eh, that's not really Spanish, I think red tile. Well, in the neighborhood, there's quite a mix of, you know, what you might think of as a mission style architecture, there weren't red tiles everywhere. So flat roof, finials, we sort of created these these types of ideas to to bring in that uh, Spanish theme into our project. Large windows, of course, those are important. Working with Canfield, they had benders that they had worked with, and I want to say they were coming from Europe doing windows and doors. So they were custom clad wood uh, windows, not your traditional vinyl that you might see everywhere else. So it was a it was a higher end. At that point, we had definitely made a move towards creating a higher end townhome that sort of followed with the materials that were chosen from an exterior standpoint. Uh, rooftop decks, you've got an attic that's quite small in space. And so you're not finding room for traditional attic ventilation. And so finding a solution that allows you to vent that space to have it breathe. Nobody wants water intrusion and mold and so forth. We've designed, I'd say quite uniquely, maybe it was a little stroke of genius on uh, our, our part or our team's part, not my part. I had nothing to do with this. I'll <laughs> give the credit to the, the right people. But instead of having vents poking out of every you know space between the framing on the exterior walls, which would just be hideous or having stacked venting you know these ugly you know sheet metal vents we're we're looking at creating into the structure we're going to have a stair tower that serves the rooftop deck you already have a structure that houses that stair and gives you a landing to then go out to the rooftop deck we're creating call it a plenum almost you're creating a space a chase of if you will that connects directly below the rooftop service that attic space and and uh that allows you to get the venting from that quite small and tight attic space up to the top of the stair housing itself. And so you're connecting these spaces and creating a really unique way to disguise the ventilation. You, you know, you don't have to have all the penetrations that you would otherwise if you started uh, looking at a more traditional system. So that that's not necessarily a, a product. It was just a a creative way of finding ventilation for the the attic space. Tell me a little bit about the rooftop decks. I mean, you know, most of us, they designed a building, we put a roof on it. You don't have to worry about people putting a barbecue up there or hanging out with their animals or, or whatever. What did you have to do special up there to make a rooftop deck instead of just a regular roof? There's different solutions on how you can get that to work. In our case, we were using sloped roof framing. So it's effectively a floor, right? So the slope that you need to properly move any water is built into the truss, if you will, of of that floor or attic space. So that gets you the proper drainage. And then of course, um, 
finishing that off with an elastomeric coating, that's pretty typical. You know, there's some pros and cons to that. You're going to see the warping of the surface you're walking on because you, you have to drain these spaces. You can't create a bathtub, obviously, and right. you can do internal deck drains. Uh, that is one way to control that. But I'd say as an industry, that's less common. Nobody wants to take that water, capture it, and then run it back into the house to then take it out. You really want to right. sheet flow as much as you can. So the design has to respond to that, obviously, in how you deal with the edges to the roof, finding good spots for downspouts and scuppers. In some cases, it's an open deck rail uh, that kind of serve two purposes. The open deck rail sometimes allows some sheet flow for proper drainage and a more traditional construction detail at the edge with flashing and so forth. Uh, but it also creates a open look from the outside viewer. And from the very beginning, knowing height was a sensitive topic for the neighborhood and eventually the planning department and process we had to go through, we, we went to what we would call visually permeable railing. So it's open. It's just a rail. It's nothing more than that, but you see, you're seeing through it. It's not a solid wall. So kind of twofold, you're creating a little less mass to the, to the home, but you're also allowing proper drainage at the same time to sheet throw through you know, an open rail system. Looking back on this project and what you originally envisioned and your process and the solutions you made throughout the way, it's kind of a twofold question. Number one, did you end up with what you wanted and what you ended up with? Are you happier with what you ended up with as opposed to what you were originally designed? Because almost nothing ends up being exactly by the time you get through all of the design and everything, exactly what you originally envisioned. And what were your biggest lessons learned on this project that going into maybe the next one that might be similar to this that you would do differently earlier or or, or just do differently, period, to make pieces or parts go more efficiently or be more effective? This is one of the, I guess, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say rare times. It doesn't happen as often that you are happier with the end result than what you expected. So the expectations were exceeded in, in terms of where we ended up. Of course, from the early inceptions of the projects, you know, when we were at 12 dwelling units, it really is so much better than what that was going to be. I am so delighted that it turned out to be 10, 10 homes and we were able to create some relief in the architecture and the edges to, to landscape. You know, those spaces are as important as the architecture, you know, the landscaping that went in is just amazing. It really adds to the, to the, the overall. Oftentimes the renderings we create are better than the final product. In this case, it's the other way around. So without a doubt, extremely delighted. I think that's a testament to the commitment that Canfield made to the project and providing high quality finished materials and, and not looking at everything in the sort of value engineering set of eyes. They were creating something special. They knew it and they, they followed it through. So that is, what's that? <laughs> Be this. <laughs> we, we won't tell our, our listeners what I just showed you, but you said value engineering. Yeah, so, we had to show you that. So your lessons learned, what would you do different next time? That's a, another interesting question for this 
project initially, I would say really those early stages to push a little bit more on what we knew was the right solution. Because we put four or five diagrams together from day one of what we thought this could be. And of course, the first choice was the highest yielding solution, 12 homes. It didn't feel right to me. And, you know, going back to those days, I wish we would have been a little bit more assertive of, hey, this isn't the right solution and really push more for what we thought was the right solution, which ended up being what we built. You know, understanding the square footage game to a developer early on, you know, total square footage is a factor. It's not just unit count. So explaining how your total square footage can be similar and then showing the attributes therein of how much better the home lives when you have that breathing room and you have a little bit more space to work with for that the design of the community and and so forth so i'd say that is one of the the bigger components you know on the technical side it's always sitting down with the guys who are going to build it sitting down with the engineers earlier and making sure you're working through some of the challenges um, that you face and the constructability so i don't think we had any negative results of lack of coordination but that can happen early enough, in my opinion, to, to get these things right. If I had one thing to do over again on the project, that, and this is sort of the bane of my existence these days, is downspouts. Getting these things in the right place, not zigzagging their way down to earth. And, you know, too often we just let it be a technical solution of here's where it goes. And if we have to jog it here and there to avoid a conflict we'll do that it just looks awful there's a couple of them not too many in this case fortunately but making that a, a bigger commitment early on and showing exactly where those need to be and being able to control that with the subs that are building it would be something i'd look to improve upon in the future you covered so much in just that one answer <laughs> of things I talk about all the time. The importance of early collaboration, the importance of not kicking that can down the road. I, I, I tell, I teach, I teach the CDT and I tell my students, one of the things you can't say in my class is I'll just deal with that during construction. That's the worst possible thing you want to do if you can avoid it. And the big one that you you really talked about is that collaboration with your client. I think anybody who who's ever worked with a developer knows how important that square footage is. But also trusting your gut. This doesn't really feel right. And knowing your client well enough, you know, some clients are, are not going to care. Cram as much in as you can. Other clients you can have a conversation with and explain why this will be in the long run a better deal and a more pleasing space. And probably also get more money and make the neighbors happier and all of those things. Not being afraid to ask. I tell the young professionals that I mentor, don't ever be afraid to ask the question. I hear it all the time. My boss is going to think I'm stupid. And my answer is, if you, if you have a good boss, they're going to be patting you on the back for asking, asking the question instead of making a mistake. So, you know, that whole following your gut, I love that. You know, listen to your gut earlier and at least have the conversation. If you get shot down, they're the client. It's their money. At the end of the day, it's their building. But at least you can go forward going, I had the conversation. And, you know, at least you can feel good about that. 
And, and sometimes you don't know until you know, until you've d- gone through the process once and then hang on to that for future projects. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a value to design and having, being able to show that and share that. It may not just be the economics. It's going to be in those spaces you create and the value of, you know, how these homes live, you know, is something real. It's not just square footage that we're looking at. We're looking at homes. Right. Well, and all of us that are buying these homes would like to know that somebody actually cared when they were designing and building them, you know? Um, So my final question that I ask everybody that I have on the podcast, I actually changed it a little bit, but if you had the power to change any one thing in our industry that would fundamentally change the quality of our projects or the work that we do, what is, and it could only be one, your top thing. And it's, that's that famous, what drives you crazy at work that I see things all the time that I'm like, this is so easy to fix. But yet all these years of my career, people are doing things the same way. What is the one number one thing you would change? Wow, that's a big question. I would. Hmm. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's coming, but if we could eliminate our dependence on the automobile, that would have a fundamental change to design and how we create these communities. Obviously, that takes more than just what does the design of a house look like? There has to be infrastructure beyond specific home design that allows you that. But if there's anything that gets me excited about that fundamental change, it would be finding solutions. And yeah, we've, we're toying around with it. It doesn't seem to be reality yet, but there's been a lot of discussion on, you know, obviously autonomous um, cars and, you know, even generationally, uh, less dependence on automobiles, uh, not necessarily needing a two-car garage and designing a home to always have to have that. You know, there's a, there's a challenge in finding those, the right solution. And especially in an urban environment like LA, there could be so much more interest to home design if uh, we could let go of that dependency. I love that answer. Nobody has answered that question that I think that you are our first season will be 10 episodes. And I I think that might be one of my favorite answers. I mean, my answer always is I'd get everybody to stop working in a silo. Oh yeah. Um, But that's kind of a narrow answer into our industry. And I love how broad that answer is in my, my youngest son lives in Boston and he's been there for about four years. He went there straight out of college. He doesn't own a car, hasn't owned a car since he's been there. But I, I agree with you. So much of what we do is, so dependent on that mode of transportation. And um, I think we could have a better world in a lot of ways if if we could it decrease that. I work at home now, so I have to go start my car every few days just to make sure the battery doesn't eventually die from the electronics. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's a very real thing, working from home. And that, that starts maybe to some extent, removing some of that dependency. Well, we've, we've certainly got exposure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we'll see how that goes. Well, Alan, thank you so, so much. This was a, You're welcome. I, I know I've had a great conversation when I didn't touch half of my questions, but I really <laughs> appreciate you joining us today, and hopefully we'll talk again. That sounds great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. 
While you're there, take a look around RCAT.com. For over 30 years, RCAT has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try RCAT and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.